morning we'll be looking at such a great salvation comes with such a great warning and such a greater hope. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, as we look to Hebrews chapter 2 and the first four verses of that chapter, we pray, God the Holy Spirit, that you will bring the very word of God to bear upon our hearts this morning. We can read and we can study, but if the Holy Spirit is not at work, there will not be spiritual benefit. So, Lord, work your word in our hearts today. I ask, Lord, that you would make me faithful and true as a preacher, a minister of your word, that together we might grow, that we would hold fast in Christ. Praying this in his name. Amen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2 in the first four verses. Therefore, we we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Back in the mid-90s, I had the privilege of studying and taking a course to become a private pilot. And one of the lessons I learned becoming a private pilot was the importance of making small corrections as one would fly from here to say Memphis you would need to constantly make small corrections as you keep your eyes on the compass or on the GPS the winds and currents would blow you a little bit off course and you would need to correct you made no corrections Instead of winding up in Memphis, uh, you might wind up in Jackson, Mississippi. Well, my experience living the Christian life is kind of like flying. I need to keep my eyes on the compass or GPS that is the Bible, the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ as I live making small corrections as I go, conforming myself to the way the Bible tells me to live, to stay on course in walking the Christian life. But there's one distinction between flying an airplane and living the Christian life. And here it is. Airplanes have typically autopilots. You get set up, you set the autopilot, it flies itself. We need to understand there's no such thing as an autopilot in the Christian life. Holding fast in Christ Jesus requires hard work, diligence, and paying close attention to what we have heard in the gospel message found in the Bible. Our passage today is a warning to every believer in every age, but it's also a message of hope for you and me 
because we have a compass, we have a GPS, we have the very Word of God and the Holy Spirit that applies that Word to us, that we might make small corrections in order that we would hold fast in Christ Jesus. So we'll consider a, a great message, a greater message, a greater testimony, and a greater warning, and a greater hope. That's our three-point message this morning. First, the author speaks of a greater message in verse 3. It's interesting how the, the author of Hebrews forms his argument here. He argues from, from the lesser that is, the, the message declared by angels, verse 2, and that refers to the Mosaic law given at Mount Sinai, and he argues from the lesser to the greater, the greater being such a great salvation declared at first by the Lord, verse 3, referring obviously to the gospel. So two messages here, law and gospel. We need to look at what the author is not saying. The author is not saying in this correlation or contrast or comparison between law and gospel that the law is unimportant and therefore not binding in the Christian life. We believe that the Bible teaches sinners are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus in his work. We are pardoned because of his work in atoning for our sin. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. We are accepted as righteous before God, not because of our personal righteousness, but because of his righteousness, his record of perfect law abiding, his fulfilling the law given at Sinai, all the commands of God, and that being credited to us. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, we are saved by grace through faith, and we're saved for doing those good works which God has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. We are saved for obeying the law. The law is binding today, not to save, but because we are saved. Nor is the author saying that there is a sharp distinction between law, the message of law, and the message of the gospel. Theologian John Frame summarizes the view that would suggest or that would distinguish or separate law and gospel by saying supposedly, law supposedly consists exclusively of commands, threats, and therefore terrors, and gospel consists exclusively of promises and comforts. Well, such a distinction separating law and gospel really isn't represented in the scriptures. The Bible teaches law and gospel, law and gospel and gospel in law and not law distinct from gospel. Indeed, we can say, writes Frame, 
that our Bible as a whole is both law because as a whole it speaks with divine authority and requires belief and gospel because as a whole it's good news to fallen creatures. Each concept is meaningless apart from the other. Each implies the other. It is really impossible truly to present law without gospel and gospel without law. I think Frame's words are helpful here. The author is not saying the law was unimportant and therefore not binding today. The author is not saying here in these first four verses of chapter 2 that the message of law is distinct and separate from the message of the gospel. Well, what is he saying? He is saying that the message of the gospel is greater and therefore we must pay attention to it even more because it comes from the Lord. It comes by the Lord. It comes through the Lord. He starts out in chapter 1 with Christ being superior to the Old Testament revelation. He's the final word. So we, we must remember the original audience that the author is addressing here. The original audience embraced the Old Testament, by the way, as we should, as part of that infallible rule of faith and practice. And the author argues from the Old Testament scriptures in chapter 1 that Christ is superior as the final word. He's superior to angels. And now he says the message of the law is to be given serious attention. And if that is so, how much more should the message of the gospel through Christ be given serious attention? Writing to Jewish Christians who were suffering persecution by the Jewish community primarily for their faith and being tempted to revert again to Judaism, it was essential that these dear believers be exhorted to embrace the message of such a great salvation through Christ, a greater message, a greater message of law and gospel, command and promise. And for you and me today, the greater message of the gospel by Christ is essential that we would hold fast in Christ. Second, the author speaks of a greater testimony. Several scriptures reference, and you may be puzzled, what do, what do you mean the words spoken by angels? Well, the Bible actually refers to the law given at Mount Sinai as being from angels. For example, in Deuteronomy 33.2, Galatians 3.19, Acts chapter 7 and verse 53, there's a reference to the word spoken by angels, those intermediaries. The author testifies that this message given by the angels is reliable, verse 2, as God's word promising what would be fulfilled in Jesus. But the point that he's making here is that there's a greater witness 
the testimony that is attesting to such a great salvation, a greater testimony. Well, let's look at this testimony. First, the author says the testimony, the evidence, we could say, is greater because it is by Christ, the Son, the final word. Look at verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord. Second, it's a greater testimony because the author received this message directly from those who were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. Look at verse 3. And it was attested to us by those who heard. And then third, the testimony that accompanies the gospel is greater because God himself bore witness to it. Look at verse 4. There's no greater witness possible than God himself bearing witness to it. How did God bear witness? How did he bear witness and testify to the authenticity of such a great salvation, a message by the Lord? The author appeals first to the signs, wonders, and various miracles, verse 4, that accompanied the proclamation of the gospel. It confirmed the message of the gospel being true. If you just for one example, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, the Apostle Peter is Pentecost sermon. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The evidence that such a great salvation is greater is given in this threefold evidence ending with God himself. And he doesn't only stop with signs and wonders, but also part of God's witness is by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, the author means the spiritual gifts that we read about in passages like 1 Corinthians 12. But I think it can also be applied to just all the works of the Holy Spirit. And I'll just give one as, as an example. The work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, which is the Holy Spirit changing a dead heart of a sinner and giving that sinner a new heart, a new nature that loves God and that now has the ability to see his or her sin, to respond to the gospel offer in repentance and faith, the Holy Spirit working bringing about such a radical change in a person whose direction was to profane the name of God to a person whose direction is to glorify the name of God. When we just think about the work of salvation and the Holy Spirit working so powerfully where a person is, is regenerated 
And then they are able to respond in repentance and turn from their sin. They're able to turn to Jesus in faith and be united to him in saving faith. They are justified on the merits of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit working as that person is sanctified the rest of his or her life here on earth. A powerful work, powerful change, a witness to such a great salvation. And if you are sitting here today and you have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit, not merely in being a portion, a spiritual gift, but in the work of salvation, you too join this testimony that points to the veracity and the power of such a great salvation. There is testimony that the message by the Lord is greater. And I stand as a witness to it because of the change that God has wrought in my life. Are there any other witnesses here? May we never forget the testimony that we are to such a great salvation that we have received by grace and through faith. The greater message that is essential to holding fast is accompanied by a greater witness, God being chief among them, declaring it is true. And third, the author speaks of a, of a greater warning and a greater hope. We've heard of the concept, I believe Martin Luther, the reformer, actually is credited in some respects for this. But, but I certainly learned uh, this from my time studying the sonship material that Jack Miller put together some years ago. And there's just a phrase that everybody learned and repeated as we went through that discipleship course. And it is simply this, preach the gospel to yourself every day. That is the hope in the midst of this warning that we have here in Hebrews chapter 2. We find bad news and good news here. First, the bad news. Let's, let's deal with the bad news. The one who neglects the law will receive, and our text says, a just retribution. And what that means is, if we violate the Ten Commandments, let's say, if we violate any command of God. It is right, it is justice that we receive retribution, punishment, that we suffer the penalty for that sin. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. That's what the Bible says. We deserve to be punished for our sin. We need to note, as I said earlier, the author is not suggesting the law is unimportant. In fact, right here is proof positive 
that the author has a high view of the law. He says every single purpose that violates the law of God, the law given at Sinai, the law representing the Old Testament, the moral law, receives a just retribution. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And his point is there's no escape from the penalty of breaking God's command as revealed at Sinai if you remain under the law. Breaking the law at Sinai outwardly and inwardly. So it gets even more of an issue because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, makes it abundantly clear that we can break the law while outwardly conforming to it. How? Well, just like this. If you do not murder someone, that's really good. While you're not murdering someone outwardly and you're angry with your brother in your heart, you're killing, killing them, eh, you're guilty, just retribution. So one of the points that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount is to emphasize the fact that obeying the law is just simply not external obedience, it's heart obedience. It's the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The author's concern is for those Jewish Christians facing persecution for their faith in Jesus, being tempted to revert to Judaism in order to escape the suffering. And by trying to escape the suffering, they find themselves not being able to escape the just retribution that comes with turning from Christ and rejecting him. Do you see what the author is doing here? He is saying, listen, my, my Jewish brothers, yes, you're under a heavy load of persecution. Yes, you are being tempted day in and day out to forsake Christ and and flee from that suffering and, and, and find the good life back in Judaism where no one's going to call you out. But you need to understand if there's just retribution for violating the law at Sinai, how much more is there just retribution for forsaking Christ and neglecting Him? Drifting from him that continues in falling away from him. Now listen, let me say, we believe that once saved, always saved. But the context here is forsaking Christ, drifting from him, putting oneself at peril in danger of not escaping just retribution. Thus the warning, lest you drift away, verse 1, 
the term drift away here is a nautical term. Think of a ship that is uh, set anchor and the anchor gives way and they drift off. Or a ship that doesn't even set anchor and it just drifts and drifts and drifts. My opening illustration in the aeronautical field is, is, is basically the same. You're not paying attention to your course. Uh, you, you know, there is no autopilot and you just drift and drift and drift and you wind up somewhere way off course. Well, how does one drift away from Christ and risk a greater retribution? Again, I want to emphasize, we believe once saved, always saved, but we need to hear this warning. And we'll dig deeper in this in chapter 6 of Hebrew. But we need, do not need to presume upon God's grace. Say, okay, I'm saved by grace. I'm live like I want to. No. Holding fast is hard work. And if you're not working hard to hold fast, you need to be concerned. And the session needs to be concerned for you. Well, one way is Jesus plus. What I mean by that is adding something to Jesus like some religious act. Another way is Jesus replaced, maybe Jesus minus. It is to erect another Savior like the law. And then there's Jesus benched, right? Uh, we just kind of go, hey, Jesus, I've got this. I'm going to bench you. And I'm, I'm on the field. I'm playing. And only when we really need some help will we call Jesus off, off the bench. And then there's Jesus forsaken. I mean, that Jesus forsaken was the concern primarily of the author for these Jewish Christians who were struggling with being faithful to Jesus while under persecution and being tempted to forsake him to flee suffering. So how does one drift away from Christ? May we not be foolish in thinking I would never do that. I'll read a quote from C.S. Lewis toward the end that basically says this. Rarely is it the case that someone just abandons Christ. Normally it is one little step at a time. Not making small corrections before you know it, you're way off course. So here's the good news though. Look at verse 1. We have what we need to hold fast, to stay on course. The message, the greater message we have, the testimony, the work of the Spirit we have. We have everything that we need to hold fast. And what the author is saying here is this. Pay attention. Work hard. Be vigilant. Look at the gospel and make those small corrections every day to stay on course. The greater warning is accompanied with this greater hope. How do we pay much closer attention to the gospel of Christ? How do we how are we encouraged to make those small corrections to stay on course and not drift off and before you know it, we have, we're well down the road of forsaking Christ. Or at least neglecting Him, benching Him, 
replacing him. I want to suggest this is just a representative list. You can add to it. There's plenty more that can be said. Daily Bible reading and prayer. Devotional life. Do not neglect a devotional life in reading God's Word and praying that you might make those small corrections to stay on course and hold fast. Weekly worship, the means of grace. I want to say a lot, but I can't say a lot because of time. But I will say this, parents and everyone else here do not neglect the means of grace. That is part of keeping your eyes on the Lord, on His Word, the means of grace, the Word, the means of grace, the sacraments, that you might weekly Make the small correction to stay on course and hold fast. We need worship. We've been provided worship. It is essential in the life of the Christian. Fellowship, community, love one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds. Discipleship, Bible studies, prayer meetings, equipping one another, supporting one another, and the list goes on. We have everything that we need to make those small corrections, to stay on course, and to hold fast in Christ Jesus, chief, the message, the word of God, the gospel, and the church. And lastly, to stay on course, I would suggest to you this, 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 this idea of preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. And what does that mean? Does it mean standing on your neighborhood street corner uh, on, a, on a box? By the way, my homiletics, homiletics professor, is that how you say that, Derek? The preaching guy at the seminary, that's what I'm trying to say, would take his students down to Boston, Boston Common, put them on a box and say, preach this. Yikes. Is that what we do? No. Well, we could. I would support you if you want to stand on your street corner and preach. But listen, C.S. Lewis, this is Rick Phillips in his commentary on Hebrews, quotes this from C.S. Lewis. It's a little long. Bear with me. I think it's worth it. C.S. Lewis wrote this. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in our minds. You need a guy like me and a guy like Derek to preach every week to remind you that it would stay in your mind and, by the way, we need to be preaching to ourselves and to one another throughout the week. Such a great salvation. 
It must be fed as a matter of fact if you examine a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? In the matter of our belief, as in all other matters, Christianity requires, what did I say? Hard work. That's what Lewis said. The New Testament describes the life of faith as a fight, as a race, and a field in which a farmer labors. Paul says in various places, I press on, I follow after, I strive, I fight. And in Hebrews, what is our theme? By God's grace, I hold fast in Christ, we labor to be sanctified. It's another way to understand it. We work out our sanctification with fear and trembling, even as God works in us, which is always the chief work. The danger of not paying attention to drifting is real and it is great and it is continual in every one of our lives today. I grew up in North Carolina. We would go to the East Coast, to the beach, did that summer after summer. There was always the threat of riptides. And so people would be out playing around at the beach and out in the water just having a good old time totally preoccupied with fun, and before you know it, there's a riptide. They didn't, didn't uh, listen to the warnings and the little flag that's flying that says, hey, you might, might want to be careful in the water today. Now, sharks are not your biggest concern, but there's a riptide. And then you're just kind of out there playing, preoccupied, and before you know it, you're drifting out. And if you don't know what to do, you could be swept away. There are many winds and currents we face every single day to cause us to drift. And if we do not make the small corrections daily, we could very well find ourselves in a very difficult situation. There is no autopilot in the Christian life. It requires faith, and it certainly requires grace, but it requires us to exert hard work in keeping our eye, in paying attention to the gospel message, to preach it to ourselves daily. And to make those small corrections. The author's issue is a stern warning here. But it is a warning that comes with a great hope. Be warned. There is a possibility uh, for you to drift away. 
and you will drift away lest you pay attention to the message of such a great salvation. Such a great salvation comes with such a great warning, but we're also blessed that such a great salvation comes with such a great hope. May the May the man that was reflected in Psalm 1 that Jason read earlier, who stayed on course, was blessed and planted, immovable. May that describe us because by God's grace, we have paid attention to such a great salvation daily. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are loving and compassionate, that you are just, and every sin will receive that just retribution. But Father, we thank you that those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ and united him in saving faith, that all of our sin, the, the guilt of our sin, all all the just retributions that we deserve, Christ has taken for us. And we are free from that judgment, that retribution in him. And more, Lord. You demand perfect obedience to your law, and he perfectly obeyed. And his perfect righteousness has been credited to us. And that's our standing before you today, pardoned and righteous in Christ and on his merits. Remind us of such a great salvation that, that we would be spurred on to pay careful attention to the gospel, your word, and by your grace that we would make those small corrections, that, Lord, we would hold fast in Christ.